This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by HCJ Contacts. Good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are. My name is Darren Joseph from HCJ.tax. We're a team that seeks to demystify the sometimes confusing world of international tax compliance, particularly for those who may be US exposed. Uh, have a look at our website. We have over 2,000 articles in our YouTube channel. We have over 1,000 videos that speak to different aspects of international tax for those of you who live that international lifestyle. Today, we're joined by the one and only international tax badass, Mr. Jimmy Sexton, an international tax lawyer who is based in Dubai. Jimmy, how are you today? I'm I'm good. I'm good. Just one clarification. I'm actually not yeah. a lawyer. I have I have, have okay. my LLM, but uh, I'm I'm an international tax advisor. Just make sure that's clear. Gotcha. Thank you very much for that clarification. Uh, and Wendy, when you're doing the daily stuff, you can probably use that intro for each 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 part. So what we have today are a series of not questions, but in what I think to be interesting topics. So without further ado, we could probably just uh, jump right in. The the first one, uh, you know, this is, I mean, the audience is lots of English speaking and primarily based in the US, naturally the biggest English speaking audience, right? So for those who may be in the US and be con they're considering living that international lifestyle, what are the categories of people that you think could benefit from it? Well, I mean, look, I, th I think there's a lot of different people that can benefit from it. I mean, I think certainly, you know, you have people that would just like to live in a different country and sort of experience what that's like, you know, the, the, the culture, the food, everything that's different. I think certainly where it becomes very interesting is with people that can work remotely, like digital nomads, um, you know, it gives a lot of flexibility, uh, especially if you're under the foreign earned income exclusion to to move around and not be and you know be considered a foreign resident for U.S. tax purposes, and I know that there's also a lot of people uh, in recent years looking to um, take advantage of a lower cost of living. I mean, both um, people who are considering retiring abroad, you know, maybe in, in in South America or in some some European countries like Portugal, for example, where you know, medical care and, and the cost of living and everything is is, is much lower and of, of high quality. And then I think also a lot of a lot of families, you know, would like their their families to experience, you know, living in a different country and also take advantage potentially of of um, you know lower cost of living. Mm, okay. So in terms of that segment, uh, from my understanding, your practice really focuses on the higher net worth individual and families is is that a fair statement to make yes and and okay so so then the question becomes like what is that what is a high net worth individual what does that mean for in, in your mean, context yeah yeah so i think i think most of you know most of the, so i think that you know normally a, a high net worth individual is defined mm -hmm. as somebody with uh, a million plus in investable assets um, mm -hmm. most, I, I think in today's day and age, I think 5 million in investable assets is probably a, a, a better, uh, categorization. And then of course you have the, the ultra high net worth individuals that I would say are probably 30 million plus. Sorry. 
my Wi-Fi signal jumped to, from one to another. Sorry about that. Uh, sorry about. Could you repeat that again, please? Yeah, sure. So I was saying, you know, I think I think the typical mm -hmm. uh, definition of a high net worth individual has been somebody who has investable assets of a million dollars or more. I, mm -hmm. I think that's changed a little bit with inflation and, and mm -hmm. you know cost of living increases and things like that. I would say a better definition is probably investable assets of five million or more for for a high mm -hmm. net worth individual. And then of course you have the ultra high net worth individuals, which I would say are probably you know twenty five or thirty million plus of uh, investable assets. Mm, okay, understood. And in terms of those, there's demographics, generally speaking, now stepping back from your practice, but relying on your understanding and your appreciation of trends yeah. and, and, and observations, like what is the faster growing segment? Is it with the nomads? Is it with the high net worth individuals? Is it with the retirees? Or is it like all moving consistently? No, I would say I would say where where I'm seeing the trends is probably I think the biggest growth is probably in digital nomads because I oh, think that they yeah. can probably benefit the most, right? I think I mean, most digital nomads are are service providers or remote mm -hmm. workers that are making less than the foreign earned income exclusion and housing exclusion. Um, mm -hmm. And so that they can really earn a lot of their income, if not all their income, tax free. It becomes a, a lot more difficult for an American high net worth individual, ultra high net worth individual to really benefit from sort of tax advantage residency programs and stuff like that, because their income is going to likely be far above the foreign earned income exclusion. So they're probably not going to get a lot of tax benefit from it. I think mm -hmm. when you look at the whole the high net worth and ultra high net worth segments, I think their motivations for moving abroad are usually uh quality of life and uh, business considerations, right? There might be more business opportunity in other parts of the world, alternative investments that might not be available in the United States, um, mm -hmm. you know, things they want their children to experience that maybe they want their kids to grow up in Europe or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, then I'm all, I'm all, and then I'm also mm -hmm. seeing, you know, more and more uh, Americans wanting to retire abroad not necessarily because of, of any tax benefits, because they're mostly receiving pension and social security income, which you know wouldn't qualify for the foreign earned income exclusion anyway. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know they do have a lower cost of living available to them in many foreign countries, and so they can retire with a much higher quality of life than they could in the United States. Mm, yeah, and, and and I'm seeing that as well for many of our clients. You know the fear of medical bankruptcy is it's real, right? So they're sure. looking at jurisdictions where uh, they can be afforded the high level of healthcare, but at an affordable price. So yeah, definitely, I, I, absolutely. And I mean, especially when you look at a lot of the European countries that have socialized medicine, if they mm -hmm. become tax resident there and start paying into the system, you know, they have access mm -hmm. to that, which which obviously is a, a huge advantage for for you know people who are in retirement and aging and probably having increased health problems. Okay, cool. Uh, next question. What are your thoughts? I mean, so we're talking about those trends that are leading people to, to look elsewhere, look outside of the U.S. So what are your thoughts on the future of the U.S.? I, I'm, I'm asking that because some of the other, I guess, practitioners in our ecosystem, they tend to be quite doom and gloom. You know, the world's going to come to an end. You need to leave while you can, that sort of thing. But I know that your your perspective is a, is a bit more nuanced and balanced than than that. You going to share your your thoughts? 
I, I mean, look, I, I, I yeah. think that um, it's a mistake to bet against the United States, right? I mean, every, yeah. every time something happens and you think the U.S. is down and out and this is the end, you know, they pull off a, a miracle, right? And I mm -hmm. think that that one of the things that the that the U.S. has to offer that that no other country has, and this is something I actually had this conversation on Friday night, having dinner with a, a friend who's who's an American, is that you know America's the probably the most innovative business forward country in in the world, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's probably the only place I've been where if you sit around a table with a group of strangers and start talking mm -hmm. about a business idea. Everybody's yeah. like, oh yeah, I think that's a great idea. How can I help? You know, oh, I know this guy yeah. you need to talk to. I mean, it's just very centered around business and, and, and people want to help each other. They want to see other people succeed. And I think also in terms of like, you know, raising capital for a business or exiting a business or something like that, there's no country like the, the United States. Uh, and it does have a lot of, uh, you know, economic influence around the world. It's also a huge marketplace. So mm -hmm. I, I think betting against the U.S. is is, is a mistake. I mean, it's certainly it's mm -hmm. you know getting more expensive and things can become more 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 difficult in in the lower income brackets. But uh, I'm definitely not doom and gloom on the United States. Okay, All right. So. So in other words, you're saying you're optimistic as to the future. So it's not necessarily about running away or escaping the United States, but perhaps uh, including other jurisdictions in in your lifestyle, as opposed to just shutting a door and burning a bridge and running away. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I mean, mm -hmm. everybody has sort of a, a different situation, right? So you yeah. need to analyze mm -hmm. it on a case by case basis. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm definitely not seeing the U.S. crumbling and, and you need to run away from it. But yeah. I, I do. But I do think, you know, when you start thinking about um, your financial health and asset protection and all that stuff, I think incorporating other countries is always in, intelligent. And, and, it, and also, you know, let's not forget that there's a lot of opportunity outside the United States. I mean, not just mm -hmm. in, in, in business, but also, I mean, even in investing in, in stock markets and in bond markets and stuff like that outside the United States. There's a lot of opportunity there that, that shouldn't be ignored. Understood. And I, I guess you kind of touched on it, but for those who may be outside of the U.S. or so non-Americans, I mean, you, you touch on, on the key advantage, but what type of entrepreneur or, you know, potential business owner or existing business owner you think is best fitted to you know, to the United States that could really benefit from, if not moving to the U.S., but incorporating the U.S. into their own international perspective as well. Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of different categories. I mean, mm -hmm. one is if you have a business, uh, you know, outside of the United States. I mean, the U.S. is a market that should not be ignored, right? I mean, it's 300 and some odd million people. It's a huge mm -hmm. market, and you know, you just can't ignore it. I also mm -hmm. think, you know, for a lot of foreigners, and I mean, this is something that I come across in my business quite a lot, is you have mm -hmm. people starting new businesses where they're looking to a future exit, right? They want to build it up, mm -hmm. they want to scale it, and then they want to sell it. Well, mm -hmm. there's no easier place than the United States to raise capital. And mm -hmm. if you're looking for an exit, the U.S. is probably going to be the easiest place to do that. And usually if you're looking for, a, you know, if you're looking down the road to potentially get acquired, Mm -hmm. by a U.S. company, which is, you know, fairly likely the case, 
U.S. companies like to buy other U.S. companies, right? Because they mm. understand the regulatory framework, they understand the laws, they're comfortable with the judicial system. And so I think for, for anybody in business, the U.S. shouldn't be ignored. I, I think there's also another, you know, probably less known category of, of non-resident alien where the U.S. becomes very attractive. And mm -hmm. that is, you know, a lot of, there's also a lot of non-U.S. digital nomads, right? And they would mm -hmm. like to do business through some type of an entity. And so typically that has been done through some sort of an offshore entity, right? In, in a no-tax jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I think is often overlooked is the U.S. LLC, right? I mean, the U.S. Mm -hmm. LLC is a, is a disregarded entity by, by default, meaning if it has a single owner, it's disregarded for tax purposes. Mm -hmm. So if you have a digital nomad providing services, they could provide those services through a U.S. LLC. And as long as they're providing those services from outside the United States, and they don't have any premises in the U.S., there's going to be no U.S. taxes, right? So that's also fairly attractive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, that gives you access to uh, U.S. banking, potentially payment platforms, feeling more comfortable with a U.S. entity as opposed to a foreign one. And from 100%. a marketing point of view, potential clients, if they see that, you know, your business is U.S., they feel a bit more comfortable. Yeah. So it, it, it gives you a lot of legitimacy compared to other jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, every, everybody mm -hmm. internationally feels pretty comfortable doing business with with a U.S. entity. And like you said, Banking has become such an issue um, over the past several years that being able to access banking in, in the U.S. I think is a huge advantage. I mean, opening bank accounts in the U.S. is pro probably easier than anywhere else in in, in the world. Yeah, and and you mentioned in, in some of your initial thoughts the U.S. participation exemption. Do you want to say a few words on that? Yeah, so I think you know one of the things that was was really interesting with 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 the United States is is the U.S used to have a tax regime before um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in, in 2017, where mm -hmm. if you had a U.S. company that received dividends from, from a foreign subsidiary, those dividends were fully taxed in the United States, right? Which was mm -hmm. one of the big reasons why so many of the large companies, I mean, Apple was really famous for it, so was Amazon, for keeping all of these profits outside of the United States and, and not paying taxes on them or paying very low taxes on them. Well, one of the things that shifted with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is that the U.S. implemented what's known as a participation exemption re regime. And this is a pretty common regime throughout the world. I mean, most European countries have a participation exemption. And essentially what that means is, in the case of the U.S., if you have a U.S. company that receives dividends from a 10% or more owned subsidiary, those come in tax-free, right? And so... A lot of times when you looked at international groups that were considering a location for a holding company, the U.S. was out, right? Because mm -hmm. those dividends that were coming into the holding company would be taxed. Now that shifted and the U.S. has actually become a fairly popular holding company jurisdiction because mm -hmm. you can repatriate all those dividends to the United States completely tax-free. And that certainly made the U.S. much more attractive. Um, and you've even seen some groups unwind their their international structures in favor of u.s holding companies be, because of those because of that tax savings that can be gotten through the participation exemption 
Gotcha, gotcha. And, you know, in some sectors, again, seeking to get your perspective, when people talk about the task and jobs are from 2017, they're a bit negative and they focus on guilty and the additional layers of complexity that some business owners may face. But you sound on balance a bit more optimistic. So are you optimistic in, in your assessment of the impact generally, at least within your ecosystem, or pessimistic or neutral? No, I mean, look, I, 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 uh, I mean, I, I, I think, I think it, I think it depends, but I, I guess I would be more optimistic, right? I mean, yes, you do have guilty, which has created a lot of complexity, and mm -hmm. it, it has created an additional layer of tax for people that may have been conducting business through companies in zero tax jurisdictions. But mm -hmm. if you look at, for example, um, you know, uh, subsidiaries of a U.S. company that might have subsidiaries in Europe, right? Where, where there, mm -hmm. I think that I, I think the average corporate tax rate in Europe is about twenty-four percent. And mm -hmm. so, you know, if you look at guilty and subpart F, you have mm -hmm. what they call the high tax exception, right? Which means mm -hmm. if if you're paying at least ninety percent of the U.S. corporate income tax rate somewhere else, then mm -hmm. you get exempted from guilty, right? And I think that's mm -hmm. The U.S. corporate tax rate is 21%. I think 90% mm -hmm. is like 19.6%, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. So as yeah. long as you're mm -hmm. subject to taxes above 19 point, your foreign subsidiaries are subject to taxes above 19.6%, guilty mm -hmm. and subpart F don't really play a role, right? They're, they're not an mm -hmm. issue. You're kind of excluded from them. Um, so I think given some of those tax rules, you know, the impact is not quite as, as, as great as you know, it would seem on the surface. Okay, gotcha. Thanks for that. Um, moving on to, you spoke about nomads earlier, and I think a popular concept within the nomad ecosystem is the idea of flag theory. And for those who may not be too familiar with it, I think the term was coined in the 1950s, I think, by a guy called Harry Schultz. And since, you know, he initially premised it on the idea of diversifying your lifestyle. He spoke about five flags, where your citizenship is, where you reside, which would be a different jurisdiction from your citizenship, where you hold your wealth, where you operate your company, where you entertain yourself. So initially five flags, but it's not dogmatic. Some people have expanded into six, seven or eight flags with crypto and stuff like that uh, rolled in. What are your thoughts on flag theory? Well, I mean, I think I think in general, I would say I'm in favor of it, right? I think I think the whole premise behind flag theory is, you know, you kind of want to decentralize everything. You kind of want to mm -hmm. have where you live be different from where you're a citizen, from where you hold your assets, from where your businesses are, and that makes a lot mm -hmm. of sense in in mm -hmm. diversification, right? I mean, if you're if you live in one, if you have everything in one country, right? You live there, you're a mm -hmm. citizen of there, all your savings is there, your business is mm -hmm. there, everything is there. You know, if you get sued or, or or war breaks out in that country or something happens, you have all your eggs in one basket, right? And so I think the idea with, mm -hmm. with, with flag theory is you sort of spread this stuff out a little bit and mm -hmm. you're minimizing the risk. And I think that overall that that's, that's a very good idea. I mean, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the, 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 the notion that you get a lot of benefit of being a citizen of one country and a resident of another country. I don't really see the asset mm -hmm. protection value in that, but I mm -hmm. do definitely see the value of having, you know, banking in, 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 in one jurisdiction. Maybe you have 
your entities incorporated under the laws of another jurisdiction. Maybe you have investments in another jurisdiction. I definitely mm -hmm. do feel that that adds a lot of value. Uh, mm -hmm. I think one of the things that you have to be a little bit careful of is I think some people take flag theory to the extreme and yeah. they really break things up a lot, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. by doing so, you add a lot of administrative burden and a lot of cost, right? I mean, every mm -hmm. every company you open, every trust you open, every banking mm -hmm. relationship you open, every residency you get, everything that adds an additional cost, additional requirements, additional um, you know administrative burden. And you, I've, I've I've just seen situations where people have taken it to such an extreme that it's almost you know half their life has been managing their their flag yeah. theory because how it's set up, right? So. I think there is a bit of a balance there, but but overall, I think the strategy is spot on. Right. But having said that, and bearing in mind your optimism on the U.S. Uh, economy, right, is there like less of an advantage to the average American as opposed to someone from somewhere else in the world? Because, yes, we've had in the U.S. some challenges with the banking system, particularly earlier this year, but it's noteworthy that nobody lost money, right? They, yeah. they, the Fed, the government made them whole. So, you know, in terms of banking and, and you know, another thing that I point out, we have something like probably two or three customers, clients coming to us each month with expatriation on their mind or who going to carry it all the way through. So that is giving up the U.S. passport green card. And one thing we point out and we give them cases, you know, from just our experience where having that U.S. passport and having the air of the U.S. embassy has literally saved lives. Given sure. given that, do you do you think for the average U.S. person there is less of an incentive to embrace flat theory than otherwise? I mean, I think I think I think one of the big, I think for an average American, uh, mm -hmm. flag theory can be a little bit cost prohibitive. Um, mm -hmm. Because as soon as you start opening up foreign bank accounts and foreign trusts and foreign companies and all of this stuff, uh, one, the complexity of how those things are taxed becomes extremely complex. And as you know, there's a there's a ton of reporting that needs to go on, right? I mean, all the different information reporting and all that stuff that needs to be done. And the the consequences of getting it wrong comes with high penalties, right? And I think one of the things that you also have to keep in mind is even if you're doing it right, you know, if you were to get audited, it's going to be a complex audit that's also going to be very costly. And I think now the IRS got this, you know, additional new funding. They want to hire 87,000 yeah. new people. And I yeah. think that they're going to be auditing a lot of people. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of the audits that they do might not even be justified, right? I think they're going to start picking you know, they promised to go after high net worth individuals because they, they seem to believe that they're they're all tax cheats, which which I, I don't think is the case, but I think yeah. it's, uh, you know, good marketing. And so yeah. I think they're going to be picking returns that uh, fit certain criteria. And so yeah. I think high net worth individuals that have things overseas fits the bill for exactly what they want to be auditing, right? And so you yeah. also have that in, increased compliance risk, potentially an increased audit risk. So I think for the for the for the average for the average American, um, it might not make economic sense. You know that that being said, though, you know I've also seen a situation. I mean, I remember I remember a, a situation probably 15 years ago or so, mm -hmm. where 
I had a, a client who was a US client, had a US company, and the IRS accidentally levied his corporate bank account and cleaned it out. Oh, right. Wow. And so, you know, and he had most mm. of his money in the corporate bank account. The yeah. IRS cleaned it out. He bounced his checks for payroll, for rent, for everything else. Um, mm. I mean, the IRS eventually returned the money uh, mm -hmm. because it was a wrongful levy, but mm -hmm. It doesn't change the fact that it caused him some significant economic harm and some reputational harm, right? I mean, it is, mm -hmm. paychecks were bouncing, rent checks were bouncing. Now, mm -hmm. had that money, some of the reserve money, not been in that corporate account and been in, in an account overseas held within a foreign mm -hmm. trust or something like that, mm -hmm. that wouldn't have happened. So mm -hmm. I, I think that there, there is value in it, but it has to be weighed against the compliance risk and, 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 and the the additional cost and administrative burden of, of administering flag theory. Mm. And closely connected to the idea of flag theory, at least in some discussions, is the idea of being a perpetual nomad. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I think being a perpetual nomad has, has become a little bit more difficult in terms of, of practicality, right? I mean, mm -hmm. a, a lot of, a lot of countries, uh, I mean, especially when you look at banking, right? So, so banking, mm -hmm. a lot of banks nowadays want to know where are you tax resident. So, mm -hmm. if you're, you know, just because a lot of people don't realize that having residency, which is the legal right to reside somewhere, mm -hmm. is not the same thing as being a tax resident somewhere, right? Like, if you take mm -hmm. the UAE for example, as long as you have a visa, you're a legal resident, but you're not a tax resident unless you spend 90 days a year there and meet a few other requirements. So. A lot of banks nowadays want to know where you're tax resident and they want to see proof that you're a tax resident. So being a perpetual nomad causes some complication with that. Um, it can also cause some complication with obtaining visas for certain countries, right? The US potentially being one of them. Like I've seen, I've seen situations where people have expatriated and their second passport was not a passport that offered visa waiver. So they needed to obtain a, a US visa. But because they couldn't prove that they were firmly resettled somewhere and really had roots there, the U.S. denied them the visa, right? So and other countries can work the same way. So I think mm -hmm. you really have to have to look at how that works practically these days. I think that it's going to become more and more difficult to be a, a perpetual nomad going forward as, as as banks and tax authorities and everything want to see that that you're you know that you're really rooted somewhere i think the other mm -hmm. potential risk is you know if you're not let's say a tax resident anywhere um mm -hmm. every country has its own residency rules right i mean it's not mm -hmm. only okay you spend more than six months you're a tax resident it can also be you have an abode there you mm -hmm. you know it's where you spend the most time it's where you do this so you also run the risk that if you don't have a firm residence somewhere, that some country may pop up at some point and say, well, mm -hmm. if you're not a tax resident anyway, we're going to try to make you a tax resident here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the other four big English speaking countries, so excluding the US, that'll be Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand. And that, that is indeed the case. In many cases, you have to demonstrate that you are bona fide tax resident somewhere else. Otherwise, fall back rules would apply. And some of the European countries as well, for example, I think Italy and uh, but the banking is it's real. And, and just like you said, it's becoming more and more common. We have clients in Southeast Asia, which is where we're more based, that have serious problems 
when they try to repatriate money or they want to move back to the European country of origin or back to Canada or whatever, if they if they've been moving around Southeast Asia, living that nomad lifestyle, and therefore they may not have been filing tax returns. So there's no yeah. what the bank back in Europe is telling, we have no way of verifying that this money is legitimate. For sure. So it, you know, so therefore you even though we know you were born here, you had this bank account since you were 17 years old, you we will, you know, it goes into a suspense account and then they push it back because it yep. doesn't pass the AML, you know, test, anti-money laundering test. So it, it is real the banking concerns. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. I mean, the, the banking, the banking concerns are real, right? And I mean, with, with, well, yeah. without banking, you can't do anything. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And, you know, when you decide, hey, I want to leave my country of origin, how do you determine where to go? I mean, then the world is your oyster, right? What, I mean, obviously, that's a, a wide open question. But what are your personal thoughts? Well, I mean, look, I, I think I think that there's some analysis that needs to go into it, and a lot of things you you need to consider, right? I mean, you need to look at, okay, you know, what 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 type of of lifestyle am I looking at? What kind of environment do I want to be in, right? Do I want to be on a beach? Do I want to be on an island? Do I want to be in 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 you know, let's say a European country? Do I want to be in the mountains? And then you need to look at uh, you know what things you need out of a country, right? I mean, what sort of business environment do you need? Um, what sort of health care or safety do you need? And then also, if you're looking at it from a tax perspective, you know, what type of income are you going to be earning? How is that country going to tax it? Are there potential inheritance taxes? Are there potential wealth taxes? So I think that there's there's a lot of things, you know, what kind of, you know, how important is safety to you, right? I mean, so mm. I think these are all kinds of things that you need to consider when 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 thinking about where to go, right? Yeah, and and, you know, for us, we have like two categories of clients, those who say, well, you know what, I want to move to Europe or specifically Southern yep. Europe. And then we could we could perhaps model Spain versus Portugal versus Italy, what works best for them, at least from a tax perspective. But when we have clients that say, well, you know what, I can go anywhere. Where should I go? I get a bit gun shy because invariably there'll be buyer's remorse, right? If, if you yep. have not physically jumped on a plane and seen and experienced it for yourself, someone can paint you the most beautiful picture, but with the most, with the greatest amount of detail. But unless yep. you verify it and see that it works personally for you, I, you 100%. know, I, <laughs> yeah, so we, we kind of push back on clients yeah. like that. But of course, both types walk in the door, right? And and I mean, yeah. I think one of the other very important considerations that, that people oftentimes, unfortunately, gloss over is, you know, how does their family feel about it? Where does their family yeah. want to be? You know, how are their kids mm -hmm. going to do in school? What, mm -hmm. you know, what's your the spouse going to do if you take them out of their social network? You know, where where do they want to be? And I mean, that's also a very big consideration that I feel like a lot of people sort of don't give enough consideration to. Yeah, and I, I remember back in business school they said that for expatriate assignments, that's the number one reason for expat assignment failure. Yeah, when your family is unhappy. So that, yep. that that is definitely key move to uh thing to consider. Next question. Oh, well, now we could talk about you personally. So sure. you were in the US and you moved to the UAE, Dubai. And I, yep. I'm being very specific in that because I was looking at another podcast and people didn't understand that Dubai was in the UAE. So just being yeah, very that's true. Uh what made you 
make that decision? What were your factors? Um, you know, so I was I was living between you know, I was living living in the U.S. I was spending quite a bit of of time in, in Europe on business, and I was also spending a decent amount of time in in the Middle East on business. But I'd never been to to the UAE, and I was actually invited to to a New Year's party there back in mm -hmm. in 2014. And I decided that ah, I've never been. I'll, I'll go check it out. And I was just blown away by the place. I mean, I just uh, really fell in love with it. And, and, and I was only there a week, but I, I loved it. And by the end of the week, uh, I was like, I'm moving here. <laughs> and, uh, so, so, the, so the next mm. year I, I went there and started spending some time there, set up a company, you know, got my residency mm. permit and all that kind of mm. stuff. And uh, I've been there eight years now and I, I, I really enjoy it. And mm. so it was, it was sort of, sort of a, sort of an impulse, um, an impulse decision, but, uh, you know, it checks a lot of boxes, especially for, for my lifestyle. I mean, most of most of my business is, is, is in Europe. So, you know, it's only depending on where you're going is like five to seven hour flight, depending on where you're going in, in Europe. Um, you know, you got to fly on a luxury airline, which is nice. Uh, yeah. the, the time zone is very convenient if you're dealing yeah. with, with Asia or Europe. Uh, it's not difficult to get people to come travel to see you because, no, you know, most people don't mind coming to Dubai. And so, you know, and, 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 you know, now that I've been there a while, I love the quality of life there. I've really come to appreciate the, the, the safety and, mm -hmm. um, you know, the convenience of everything. It kind of reminds me a lot of America, right? Everything's, you know, in Europe, things close Sunday, things close yeah. early. It's not yeah. so convenient. Dubai is just like the U.S., right? It's 24-7. It's uh, yeah. Everything's going. It's very business oriented. So you know, I feel very comfortable there. I like it a lot. Right, so 2014, 2015. So, you, you know, it's gone in, you know, peaks and, and troughs, right? So the latest, sure. my, my perception is that the latest uh, upswing in the popularity of Dubai as a jurisdiction really came around COVID. You know, it was the only international city that was open. Everywhere else was closed and yep. it was open for business, you know, and then it just kind of got a, a voice of its own. But having said that, you know, some people that we talk to, uh, I mean, they're enjoying it for now, but they're not too optimistic on the future. They 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 have questions about sustainability, viability of the economic model. What are your thoughts on the future of Dubai? I mean, I know you're not nobody psychic, but what are your personal thoughts? Um, I mean, look, I'm I'm pretty bullish on on Dubai. So so my read is this, you know, I I, I was there when COVID hit, you know, and it was yeah. it was a it was a pretty harsh lockdown uh, when mm -hmm. it first came, but. Mm -hmm. You know, once they kind of started to figure things out, they eased the rules. As you said, they mm -hmm. opened up uh, in July of 2020. You could travel in and out. And I mean, they pretty much stayed open from July 2020 until now. And then the restrictions kept getting easier and easier. Um, so I think they managed COVID very well. And one mm -hmm. of the things that I saw, and then this is kind of where my bullishness came from, is when COVID first hit, I was like, that's it, it's game over for, for the UAE, right? I mean, there was so many people leaving, there was so many yeah. people moving out, so many businesses um, laying people off and getting rid of employees. But then when they reopened um, and people saw how they were handling the pandemic, mm -hmm. and I think especially when you you look at Europe and a lot of the bailouts that were, were done by governments here, I think a lot of the wealthy population saw mm. that and said, well, they're going to be looking to us to pay for this, right? And so yeah. I think during 2020 and 2021, there was a lot of wealthy Europeans that started to move to Dubai. 
and uh, you know a lot of people from other countries as well, right? We're starting to move to Dubai because of the freedom that you had with with COVID, and that already sort of started the the uptick, right? Mm-hmm. Now you add on top of that that Singapore has been talking about things like wealth taxes. I saw I saw another article that was saying that they're considering a 60% property tax on non-resident purchasers of, of real estate. And so I think you see a lot of people looking at Singapore not as bullish anymore. We're starting to see some family offices and funds and individuals come from Singapore to, to Dubai. You know, the, the other country that used to be competition for, for Dubai was, was Hong Kong. I think with, with the, you know, this new Chinese security law, we're seeing a lot of wealth and individuals move out of Hong Kong to Dubai. Um, obviously, we had a, a big influx of, of, of Russians and Ukrainians, given given the, the war. And now that China's opened up again, a lot of the wealthy Chinese that have been locked down and unable to travel out of China during mm-hmm. during COVID, they're all looking at Dubai as a place to, to resettle, to have that not happen again, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think Dubai is really sort of the only tax-advantaged country uh, of, of, of that, you know, it used to be Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong. Now, it's, now it's just Dubai. And mm-hmm. the other thing that, that I think Dubai offers that a lot of people don't know is, you know, Dubai has 137 tax treaties. That's more mm-hmm. than Switzerland. And when you wow. look at Sing, when you yeah. look at Singapore, when you look at Hong Kong, I mean, I, I, it's been a long time since I've looked, but I, I seem to remember Hong Kong had like 12 tax treaties or something, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you start looking at jurisdictions to, to base a multinational business out of, Dubai makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. you you're able to repatriate a lot of, uh, of the profits, you know, in the form of dividends from, from subsidiaries at, mm-hmm. at, a, at a pretty cheap rate. So mm-hmm. I think, I, 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 so I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on Dubai. Mm, yeah, I, I hear and what you're you saying. The, the challenges in Hong Kong is self-evident, and Singapore is it's super expensive. You know, the threshold yep. for the family office benefits has been pushed up pretty high, and because of the influx of people from mainland, from Hong Kong, from Taiwan, you know, real estate, you know, my my rent doubled or, or, or whatever the case may be, and I, I have it easy. But having said that, in the in, in Dubai in particular, not in the other Emirates, but Dubai in particular, uh, you know, again, real estate is is going up, but also banking uh, is being discussed as a challenge. What are your thoughts on banking in the Emirates? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I mm. think I think that banking has gotten, I think it's eased up a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know when when I first got there eight years ago, banking was 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 fairly easy to get. Um, I think uh, you know because of being on the EU blacklist and being gray listed mm-hmm. and, and and things mm-hmm. like this, that they did a, a pretty hard correction where banking mm-hmm. became very very difficult. Um, I've seen it ease up a bit now. Banking is banking is becoming becoming easier, but it's still not easy, right? I mean. Uh, you still need to jump through a lot of KYC hoops. Uh, in some cases, depending on the type of business, they want fairly high minimum balances, or they want you to make personal investments, you know, with the bank in order for them to open the company accounts. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that there's sort of a policy that you need to be a resident now in order to get banking. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm seeing it ease up. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think okay. that they've come to realize that you, know, you can't be a, a true financial center if people can't get banking, right? So um, I, I think I'm not seeing a lot of people get accounts denied. I mean, mm-hmm. it might take 30 days, 60 days to get an account open, but mm-hmm. in, in most cases, you know, we are seeing the accounts get 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 open. Okay, that's fair enough. Now, going back to, okay, where do you set up a company? What what are your, I mean, obviously there's a wide array of factors, but what are the key factors you use in counseling your clients as to where you should establish, which jurisdiction you should establish your company? Well, I mean, I, I think I think that's a I think that's a, it's a very open-ended question. Much much mm-hmm. like you know, if if you're going to move out of the United States or move internationally, I can go anywhere. Where do I go? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends yeah. on a lot of factors, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, for example, um, how is that? Like we're talking a little bit about the U.S., right? How is mm-hmm. the jurisdiction going to be viewed internationally, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if if you go to to like a a, a super tax haven jurisdiction, and I'm not going to like mm-hmm. name names, but if you go to you know, a yeah. super tax <laughs> jurisdiction, you're going to have problems mm-hmm. getting banking. You're going to have problems trans. And even if you can get banking, you're going to have problems transacting business, right? If you're trying to wire, you know, if you have a client in Europe that's trying to wire you money to a bank account held by, you know, a company that's that's from a blacklisted jurisdiction or, or, or uh, even a jurisdiction that maybe reputationally isn't so good, that's going to be mm-hmm. problematic, right? So I think mm-hmm. you need to look at... Um, what this company is going to be doing? Where is it going to be receiving income from? Is it going to be a trading company? Uh, mm-hmm. is, it, is, is it going to be a holding company? What is the availability of, of, of banking going to be? Are there going to be economic substance requirements that requires that company to be operated from within that country? Which mm-hmm. means that you know you need to have premises and personnel there. Um, is is our tax treaties necessary? Right. If it's a holding company, you need to be repatriating dividends or interest or something like that do you need tax treaties to 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 take advantage of um or do you need the provisions of you know the the permanent establishment provisions of uh, a tax treaty to protect your company for contacts that it has with a treaty partner country right so i think Mm -hmm. that those are all things that need to be considered when when Mm -hmm. thinking about where to set up a, a company and i think also just from a perception standpoint you need to look at where where the owner operator of the company mm-hmm. is going to be, right? I mean, it looks mm-hmm. a little bit strange to banks and tax authorities and everything else if you live in Germany and you're running a company from the Cayman Islands, right? I mean, it could be a completely mm-hmm. legal setup, mm-hmm. but it still looks a little funny and, and you know might draw questions. So I think you also need to look at it from a perception standpoint of you know what kind of fits with with the picture that that you want to show. Yeah, and and that that is definitely true. You know, too often I have people, you know, approaching us via the website or, or whatever, and they, you know, they have these exotic jurisdictions that I use in in air quotes. So jurisdictions that are reputationally challenged, as, as you mentioned, yep. and they are, you know, they seem to be partial towards that without understanding the consequences of it, and you know, you know, sure. the banking, the questions. So so yeah, those. Those are indeed uh, key considerations. So it's not just about Googling and looking at the lowest tax and then that's your answer. No, it's there. There's a yeah. wider array of questions to consider. Okay. And, and I mean, I think one of the big things that that, that people miss now is, is this, you know, the economic substance regulations, right? I mean, mm-hmm. pretty much every zero tax jurisdiction has economic substance regulations that require that the core economic 
or the core income generating activities of the company mm -hmm. are done but you know from premises and with personnel located in in, in that jurisdiction and even mm -hmm. if you think in terms of a holding company you know that the core income generating activities might be as little as as a board meeting or two a, a year right but mm -hmm. if you don't have people locally there that requires travel there at least once or twice a year or whatever to do these board meetings and I think that that's something that people often overlook and, and overlook what the consequences are of, of not meeting those economic substance requirements. Mm. Or if not, they need to prove, okay, where is the substance? Where are they actually located? Where are they paying taxes? So the whole yeah, idea sure. of I'm set something up and pay no taxes nowhere, it's, it's often a non-starter, really. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's it's so funny because I I, I look, I, I think, you know, I don't know if you watch that show on Netflix, The Ozarks, right? Where oh, the, yeah. <laughs> routing all this money through Cayman companies and all these companies. And, I don't and know how that works. Accounts, yeah, opening yeah. a bank account through a computer. And I, I think that people have a very... Um, yeah unrealistic view of, of, of how the international yeah. world works, right? I mean, they mm -hmm. just think like, it's super easy. You open a company, run money through, yeah. you don't pay taxes. Well, you know, mm -hmm. that you, you even though it wasn't legal, you may have been able to do that 15 years ago, but yeah. <laughs> it's, it doesn't work today. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, it was awesome. That's, we could probably do a separate one when the next season comes out. Cause that, that, sure. that is an interesting one from, uh, uh, a business structure and perspective. But, you know, a lot of the conversation so much has rightfully been on banking. So how do you decide, and again, super open-ended question, but what are the factors one considers in determining where to bank for your company and for yourself, personally? Well, I mean, I, I, I think, I'm, unfortunately, a lot of it comes down to where you can actually get it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I think it always makes sense to to do business with, you know, the, the largest, most stable banks that that you can, right? I mean, in, in order to to protect your money on deposit there, um, mm -hmm. and and to get access to to good services and things like that. I think one of the things that that we're seeing is, you know, it used to be possible to have a company in one country and open a bank account in another country, right? Or to be a resident of this country and open a bank account in in another country this has become almost impossible these days, right? I mean, most countries the, now, banks will only open accounts for individuals and companies that are tax resident in that country, right? If you're um, not a, a tax resident, your company's from somewhere else, they're just not going to open accounts. I mean, I think the, the only true international banking center left is Switzerland. I'm, I'm not uh, aware of any other country at the moment that actively opens bank accounts for for companies and individuals that, that aren't resident in Switzerland, right? I mean, that's their. I mean, the international the banking is really their their bread and butter, and it's the only country that I know of. I mean, any anywhere else, you're going to need to be a resident, or the company is going to have to be a tax resident in order to to open the accounts. I know that there are some banks in the United States that will will open accounts, you know, for for non-residents or or companies that are non-residents, but you know, they're becoming fewer and fewer. Yeah, and in the U.S., at least the ones that my clients, you know, bring to my attention, when I do a deeper dive into them, they're not really banks. And again, these are just the ones that I'm aware of. I can't speak for every single one. They they tend to be technology platforms that sit yes. on banks. So then they make it quite clear in their very, very, very fine print, we're not a bank. So, yeah, it's but 
yeah. it's very much like a lot of these like uh, currency yeah. exchange houses or or, yeah. or money transmitters, things of mm -hmm. that nature that works as a as, as a pseudo bank but not an actual bank, which right. you know is isn't necessarily so secure for your money. Yeah, and but going back to Switzerland, given the I mean, they seem to have violated their position, the historical position of neutrality. Uh, well, it's been twice in the last decade or so. Once in, in terms of the U.S., uh, you know, that, that whole thing with the DOJ and Americans who were allegedly, you know, violating or engaged in tax evasion. So there's that thing that started with UBS and just spiraled outwards and downwards, but also recently with the whole Russia-Ukrainian situation and, you know, just basically blacklisting people for their passports. What, given Switzerland's evolution, what, what are your thoughts going forward? Do you think its status will be what it is or you think it's on the way down or you think it's doing the right thing? What are your thoughts? Um, yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think, um, I think that I, I don't think it's going to damage Switzerland, right? I mean, I think, I, I, I think you know when you look at, for example, the UBS thing, um, you know they were helping people evade taxes in the United States, right? I mean they're helping people break the law, which obviously they're not doing anymore. Um, I think when you when you look at the Russia thing, I think most Swiss banks, um, what they wound up doing was freezing the accounts of Russian citizens, but not actually closing them, right? Where I think yeah. most most banks in most countries closed the accounts was like, okay, money gone. I think mm -hmm. Switzerland, as much as possible, is trying to maintain the relationships that they can with their clients, hoping that in the future, they'll be able to do business with them again. But mm -hmm. most of the banks didn't actually kick the clients out. They just froze the accounts. Um, not sure that in the eyes of a Russian whose money is frozen that that's much different, but different. Yeah. Um, that that that's the situation. But I think that the advantage that that Switzerland has is it's really the last true private banking center, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's really the the last place that is offering international banking to companies and individuals that aren't resident there. So mm -hmm. you know, if you're the only if you if you're the only game in town. Um, it you know it, it's going to be pretty hard to dethrone them. So I think that I think that Switzerland will will continue to be successful. And I mean, even if you look at, for example, what it takes to open an account. I mean, let's. I mean, even if you're talking about opening an account, let's say for a Luxembourg company in Luxembourg, mm -hmm. it's still easier to open an account for a Luxembourg company in Switzerland than it is in Luxembourg, mm -hmm. right? I mean, uh -huh. the, the 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 EU's you know, fifth anti-money laundering directive just is, is so difficult, requires so much due diligence that, mm -hmm. you know, opening accounts in Europe, especially if you have a complex structure, has mm -hmm. become super difficult, right? And I mm -hmm. think that the, the Swiss take a much more reasonable approach to, to and pragmatic approach to due diligence. And, mm -hmm. and therefore, uh, you know, it, it makes banking there easier than anywhere in Europe. Okay, gotcha. Now, we, you mentioned earlier, and, and correctly so, that, you know, what was possible 15, 20 years ago is no longer possible today. Yeah. And, and when it comes to banking, especially, uh, you looking at setting up uh, banking, bank accounts, 
for individuals and companies that are resident in that jurisdiction. So as a result, for those of us in the international tax and structuring space, invariably, suddenly part of the conversation has to be around residency. So migra in migration programs, whether they be investment-led, so you have to pay golden visas or whatever, or yeah. non-investment-led, where you, you can just apply for work permit and, and get it. So what are your thoughts on that space? Because it historically has been kind of, you know, it has had a dark cloud over it. There have been misunderstandings around it. What are your thoughts on investment migration versus non-investment migration options, generally speaking? Well, I mean, look, I think I think generally investment mi migration mm -hmm. uh, is, is viewed, as you say, you know, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying there's a doubt, dark cloud over it, but I think that they are view, viewed more suspect by, yeah. by banks and tax authorities than, mm -hmm. you know, traditional immigration that's not through through investment, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, most of the in mm -hmm. I mean, most of the investment migration programs all come with a tax benefit, right? I mean, there's, yeah. they're, they're all they're, they're all sort of designed around providing people with some sort of a tax benefit for in exchange for for their investment, right? And mm -hmm. I think that this, I mean, I, I think that that you know it's good business for a country to offer this, right? I mean, they're getting people mm -hmm. to come in, they're getting economic benefits, the people are spending their money there, and they're not a drain on the system. Mm -hmm. um, but for sure, I think that you know uh, banks. And, and 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 tax authorities view them as suspect. And I think that also, you know, I think, you know, you also have to be very careful though. If if you're complying with the rules of whatever the investment migration program is, though, mm -hmm. it should still be okay, right? But mm -hmm. you have to comply with the rules. I mean, just mm -hmm. look, for example, at this whole Puerto Rico thing. I know that that you know, Puerto Rico is is some people may not know is sort of the only place where Americans can move mm -hmm. and, and yeah. pay less tax because of its relationship with, with the United States. Mm -hmm. And so they had this rule that if you were a, or, or have this rule that if you're a Puerto Rican resident, you pay taxes at, at the Puerto Rican rates rather than the US rates, which are obviously much, much lower. So there was mm -hmm. a lot of high net worth individuals, hedge fund managers, all this kind of stuff that, that moved to Puerto Rico to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. If I, I, I'm not an expert on the Puerto Rico program, but from what I remember, in order to be, you know, qualify for the program, you needed to spend 183 days in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people played pretty fast and loose with those rules. Mm -hmm. I know that this is one of the things that the IRS wants to, to really focus on and, and look mm -hmm. into. And my guess is that they'll probably find quite a few people in, in violation of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think if you do do an, you know, sort of investment migration program, you need to strictly comply with the rules of how much time you're required to have and whatever else the criteria but i think in in, in general you know a, a normal migration as a not through through investment is, is is viewed in a more favorable light than than the investment migration programs mm, yeah um puerto rico we did have someone uh, an accountant from puerto rico and he was going through in detail what you know, when, when you say people have been paying a little bit fast and loose with the rules. I mean, you're understating it. People have been trying to abuse the system. And definitely yeah. from the announcements, the public announcements that the IRS has made in videos as well as on their website, all this, all these updates, it's it's definitely a priority. 
But then, you know, I'm just reflecting on what you said earlier, like a lot of the investment migration programs are built around some sort of tax benefit. But when I think of, for example, the US, you know, you go in and UB5 or whatever, but there's no real tax benefits, you're all in, right? Or yeah. Austria, Austria, which seems to be the only one in the EU that the EU is comfortable with. They don't pick on them, you know, as opposed to yeah. all the Southern European ones. And again, no tax benefit on Austria. So that that leads me to, to my next question again. These golden visas, obviously they've been in the news what's happened with Vanuatu and some Caribbean islands having to change or they've been threatened in some veiled way. What, what are your thoughts on the whole golden visa landscape, generally speaking? Well, I mean, look, I, I think, like I said, I think they're going to they're going to continue to exist because, mm -hmm. the you know, countries receive a lot of benefit from it. Right. I mean, they, yeah. they, they get the investment, plus they get the people there spending money without being being a drain on the system. And mm -hmm. a lot of these countries don't really have a lot of um, other ways of raising revenue. Right. I mean, especially mm -hmm. when you start looking looking at the islands. So mm -hmm. I think that the golden visas are, are, are definitely going to continue. Um, I think that the international community will continue, you know, the, the let's say the, the group of tax cartel nations is going to mm -hmm. continue to put yeah. pressure on because, you know, they're fiscally irresponsible and they're desperate for money. Um, mm -hmm. So they obviously do, don't like it, right? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's so, so like mm -hmm. I said, I, I think the golden visas will continue. I think it's mm -hmm. going to be important for anybody that wants to take advantage of a golden visa that they strictly comply with with the rules of it, mm -hmm. um, because you know whatever country they're leaving is going to try to claw them back right as much as they can mm -hmm. to to try mm -hmm. to tax them. Yeah, and you know that that you know uh, like the the cartel, uh, the, the the wealthy countries who are having challenges right now. I mean, you're absolutely right. There's not only blacklist, but at the OECD or the EU level, but they are blacklist within each of these uh, very these smaller nations. And when when I think of one country that's been picked on recently, I come back to the UAE, right? And you know, if you if you're in Spain and you've been tax resident in Spain for X number of years and you move to Dubai, you have to continue paying taxes in in Spain under these fallback rules. So. I, I'm I'm wondering. So recently, I'm sure everyone is aware, at least, that pays attention to this space, that there's been the imposition of a nine percent corporate tax. Not in everyone on specific circumstances can trigger it. Do you think that this is the beginning of a change in the UAE's tax and landscape, or is it a one-off? It's done. It's dusted. There's nothing else to see here. You can move on. Um. No, I th I think it's going to evolve, right? I mean, I think the the UA the UAE is trying to tread a very fine line between being an attractive financial center and business hub, and obviously being an attractive business center and financial hub requires tax advantages, right? I mean, you have to be. I mean, this is one of the things that always sort of gets me with with Europe um, that they're always trying to somehow grow their economies and stimulate business and all this stuff while subjecting everything to very heavy taxation. I mean, it's it's proven throughout history that if you want to stimulate the economy and attract businesses, you need to lower taxes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think taxes is obviously one of 
the things in the UAE that's very attractive about it. But they have to tread this fine line, like you were saying about blacklists and gray lists and all this stuff, where if they don't have any taxes at all, they're not going to be very successful as a financial center because they're going to be blacklisted, they're going to be gray listed. You're not going to be able to transact business from the UAE with the rest of the world in, in a very efficient, reliable manner. And so I think that they're they're they're, they're you know trying to ride this fine line of staying attractive to, to businesses uh, who are looking for 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 you know global headquarters and places to do business, but also keeping the international tax cartel community mm -hmm. happy so that you can actually do business from there, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think for the time being, it's, you know, this is done. There's nothing more to see here, but look, things are constantly evolving, right? We don't know what the next step of the global tax deal is going to be, right? I mean, we have this big OECD global tax deal that only applies to, you know, the biggest companies, but mm -hmm. like with anything, right, the threshold is going to come down. I mean, at some exactly. point, it's gonna, no. at some point, it's going to... Uh, apply to all businesses, right? And mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we saw a, a, a global minimal, minimum individual income tax, right? That, that's going to apply to individuals. Mm -hmm. And you'd probably sell it the same way, right? It applies to billionaires only. And the next thing you know, you make a hundred grand, you have to pay minimum, mm -hmm. minimum tax. And mm -hmm. so I think that, that as the international tax landscape um, evolves, so will the UAE's tax system, right? I mean, they're mm -hmm. going to, they're going to have to continually ride this fine line of trying to stay attractive to high net worth individuals and businesses, and at the same time, keep the international tax cartel happy so that, you know, you can actually do business from there, right? Mm. So I think for the time being, I don't think we're going to see anything new jump off in the next couple of years, probably, but I think for sure it is going to involve, evolve as, as the international tax landscape evolves. It's going to have to. Right, absolutely. I completely agree with you. Now, we've spoken a lot about taxes, but also, I mean, moving in tandem with taxes is the, international, the issue of transparency, right? So yeah. transparency is one perspective, but anti-privacy is another perspective of, of the same initiatives. Obviously, we have FATCA, but we also have CRS, Automatic Exchange of Information, and a whole bunch of, of other bilateral and multilateral agreements. What are your perspectives on those? Well, I mean, look, I think that I think most of it, not all of it. I mean, FATCA obviously and CRS are are are, are tax um, initiatives, but I think a lot of like these beneficial owner registers and a lot of this mm -hmm. transparency stuff and anti-privacy stuff that is happening. You know, a lot of them are selling it as, you know, the governments are mostly trying to sell this anti-money laundering and anti-you um, know terrorist financing. But the reality is. You know, there's currently a war on wealth. I mean, it's all about taxes, right? There's, yeah. there's, 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 there's you know, my opinion, there's a war on wealth. And, the, you know, you can't fully tax wealth unless you know where it is and you can track it. So to yeah. me, this, all this anti-privacy mm -hmm. stuff has one goal, which is to be able to identify wealth, mm -hmm. track it, figure out who owns it and tax it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, that, that that's going to continue. Okay. So in terms of advising clients, is it like, don't bother fighting it, just get on board, be 100% compliant? 
or because I've spoken to other advisors who've taken a different position, if you choose to fight it, these are the jurisdictions that are not playing ball. So you can perhaps look at stretching your way using those jurisdictions. Obviously, the infrastructure is not as developed and you'll have to compromise. But if you want to exit the matrix, this is what you, what you can do. Do you, which, which perspective or do you embrace both? So I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the first camp, right? I'm, I'm okay. fly and deal with it. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, most of, you know, most of, as we said earlier on, you know, I mean, most of my clients are high net worth individuals and ultra yeah. high net worth individuals, and they need to be able to conduct business. They need to be able to move capital internationally mm -hmm. freely. They need to be able to do banking in different jurisdictions, set up companies in different jurisdictions. They need tax treaties. They need all these different things. And that's just not possible if you're taking advantage of these few, it's called non-compliant jurisdictions, right? I mean, not that there's something illegal about doing business in those jurisdictions. Um, it's certainly not breaking the law, but mm -hmm. you know, it just makes conducting international business almost impossible, right? So I think I think that you're much better off complying. Obviously, mm -hmm. I think privacy is 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 very mm -hmm. important. You know, I'm, I, I definitely you know advise against setting up companies, yeah. for example, in countries that have public beneficial owner registered, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. want to try to keep it. To private beneficial owner registers and there's enough countries with private beneficial owner registers that are still internationally accepted that mm -hmm. um you know to me that's more advantageous so i i'm definitely in the camp of you know you just have to comply with it and deal with it and try to structure your affairs within you know that compliant framework because otherwise you're just not going to be able to to do the financial transactions that, that you need to do yeah, essentially, you're locking yourself out of the international system. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So obviously, this is a very complex field. There are lots to, to consider. Our, our team deals with compliance, so actually doing the returns. But complex planning, we hand them off to, to firms like yours. How is it that someone can choose the right tax person team for advanced international structuring uh, asset protection, succession planning, like what you do? What's the right way to make that decision? So look, I think the two biggest things that you want to look for in an advisor are are, are one, uh, that they're solutions oriented, um, mm -hmm. that they're not trying to sell a specific product or a specific structure, right? That it's somebody that's going to analyze your situation and try to find the right solution for you. I think the other part of it is that you want to find an advisor that has a, a global perspective, right? I mean, if you're a multinational person, you know, somebody's using flag theory, for example, you're going to have, you know, maybe citizenships in this country that's going to have a, you know, potentially a tax aspect to it. You're going to have residency in this country. You're going to have businesses in this country, assets in this country, so on and so forth. And you, you need somebody that's going to analyze all of that and try to figure out what the best structure looks like, right? Where do we need the companies? Where do we want the trust or foundation? Where do we want your residency? How, how do we want this whole thing to work, right? And then find the, the jurisdictions and the structure that work best for you. Mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, a lot of the people out there that you know sell, sell themselves as advisors are not really advisors, right? They're, they're entity salesmen or structure salesmen that are going out there and saying, I have this package solution, I have this structure, buy this, and it solves everything, right? And then that's mm -hmm. never the case. Um, yeah. And then I think the other part of the problem is, you know, you have a lot of 
what I would call single jurisdiction advisors, right? Like if you're a lawyer in Switzerland, for example, mm -hmm. and a client comes to you with, 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 you know, their situation, you know, they're probably going to try to fit you into some sort of a Swiss solution because mm -hmm. that's what they know. And that's how they make money. Um, mm -hmm. And so I really think what's important is you actually kind of want to separate the implementation of your structure from the planning, right? You don't want to go to the same guys that are going to set up the companies and set this up for advice, right? Because they're going to try to give you advice that fits with what they can sell. So I think that that when, when choosing somebody, you know, you really want to choose somebody that is really only selling advice and you want to try to ask them questions to make sure that they're, they're solutions oriented and that they kind of understand the, the global landscape, the relevant jurisdictions, um, and what's out there rather than, than a single jurisdiction. Hmm. This is a good point, especially the idea of divorcing implementation from planning. Because uh, yeah. you know, you know, there's so many, especially in the online space, there's so many influencers uh who, you know, everyone has a comfort zone. So there's some people who claim to be international. But they only sell Dubai. Uh, that's it, exactly. really. or who only sell Belize, or, or, or whatever the case may be. So, so yeah, that, that, that's that's quite helpful. Thank you for that. Yeah. In terms of asset protection strategies, what what I mean again, super open ended question, but generally speaking, what what are the tools in the average toolbox, and what should someone be looking for as they as they try to find someone to help them make that step? Yeah. So, I mean, look, I, I think when you, I think a lot of the same stuff applies, right? I mean, I think when, mm -hmm. when you start thinking about asset protection, I think mm -hmm. that probably the, the two most common structures that are the backbone of any asset protection structure are probably going to be a trust or foundation, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I usually would recommend that you set up your trust and foundation in a jurisdiction that is not your country of residence, right? Because your country residence is probably where any liability would arise. So, you know, I mean, ideally in an asset protection structure, you probably want your trust and foundation structure in, 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 you know, another country and it's banking in yet another country, right. To kind of separate it out uh, a, a bit. Um, but yeah, I think trust and foundations are probably the, the best asset protection tools. You need to find an advisor that, you know, really understands them well. Uh, and then you need to look for a jurisdiction that is gonna gonna suit your needs, right? I mean, different people have different different priorities, and so you need to look at which jurisdictions have the laws that you know are, are going to benefit you the most, and kind of tick the boxes for what you want to achieve. Uh, and I know you personally, and through your your company, the Squire Group. There's so many, uh, that seems to be an area of specialty for you and your team, yeah. because I've seen, I've, I watch everybody you've done, and so many of them are built around trust and foundations. You have a, a lot of content. So that yeah. that's an area of specialty for your team. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no. So I was just wondering, just as an overview, because again, going back to the Ozark, there's so much misunderstanding about you. People can tap me and I'm sure they do you. Hey, I want to set up a trust so I can hide all my money or yeah. so that I won't get taxed. Can you help me? So basically, you know, really helicopter view. What is a trust versus what is a foundation and how are they useful? Just Yep. So, I mean, I mean, I mean, the basic premise, I think, of, of both and how they protect assets is very similar, right? I mean, you're taking assets 
out of your own name and putting it within this within this trust or or foundation structure. And mm -hmm. by doing so, you're essentially accomplishing two things. Because you no longer own that asset, um, you know, obviously, depending on the jurisdiction, you generally would not be liable for the taxes generated by the assets put in the trust or foundation. Now, that's not the case in every country, right? I mean, if you're an American and you put assets into a foreign trust, you're still going to be taxed on it because of how the U.S. taxes uh, foreign trusts created by Americans. But in most countries, you would not continue to be taxed on the assets placed in the trust or foundation. And then the asset protection part of it is because you no longer own those assets, if you get sued or become liable for something, those are no longer going to be, be accessible, right? But there's a lot that you have to consider when, when setting up the trust or foundation, because you know a lot of times people who are setting these things up, obviously they're transferring their wealth to it, right? So they want to maintain a lot of control. But the problem is if you maintain too much control, then tax authorities are going to treat the assets like they're still yours. Or for example, a, a, a court, if you had liability, could say, well, they could just order you to revoke the trust, for example, or to distribute all the assets to yourself and pay off this judgment. So there is a very uh, you know, balancing act there between how much control you can maintain while still receiving these, these benefits. And I think one of the, you know, when you start thinking about, about taxes, I think one of the biggest benefits of, of trusts and foundations is that these can be multi-generational structures, right? So if, you know, the idea is, if you think about it, if you don't have a trust or foundation, let's say you're an ultra high net worth individual, right? So you leave a hundred million to your heirs, you pay estate taxes, right? Now your heirs die and they leave it to the next generation to pay estate taxes a debt. In two or three generations, the wealth is gone, right? And that wealth is then vested in those people, which means it's not, there's no asset protection. They're, you know, if there's any wealth taxes or anything like that, they're going to have to pay that. They're going to have to pay taxes on the income generated by that wealth. Whereas if we put those assets in a trust or foundation, we get a lot of benefits, right? Even for the beneficiaries. Because you could set up a trust or foundation, for example, and say, myself and all my bloodline heirs are beneficiaries. So that means your kids, your grandkids, your grand grandkids, and so on and so on. And what would happen is generation after generation, the assets stay in the trust or foundation. And those beneficiaries can receive benefits, but they never actually own the assets. And that has a lot of benefits, right? I mean, one, assuming that the trust or foundation is set up in a tax-free jurisdiction, which it likely would be, the income is accumulating in their tax rate. Obviously, when the beneficiaries, depending on where they reside, get a distribution, there could be tax, but you don't have tax within the structure. Also, because the assets are never passed from generation to generation, you don't have the estate taxes. You don't have the wealth taxes. And more importantly, and this is something I think a lot of people don't, don't think about, is because these beneficiaries don't own these assets, they don't need to think about what countries they're going to live in as much, right? So if you have 20 million in assets, you need to think, okay, are there wealth taxes? Are there inheritance taxes? You know, what are the income taxes? But if it's within the trust, you don't really have, you, you, there's no better way to say it, but you're not burdened with the wealth, right? I mean, you can mm -hmm. kind of go where you want. You pay taxes mm -hmm. on the distributions, but you don't have to worry about that wealth being attributed to you or that income being attributed to you in tax. 
And likewise, it also provides asset protection for the beneficiaries, right? Um, the, if they get sued, the assets are in the trust or foundation, right? They, they're not accessible. If they get divorced, not their assets, not at risk. So I, I think that the trusts and foundations are, are by far the pillar of any asset protection strategy. Right, and, and I encourage every anyone who's watching this video and they want to get more details, you know, to just uh, do a search on YouTube for Squire Group, Jimmy Saxton. And uh, I've, I spend an inordinate amount of time online and I've not seen any advisor go into the detail that you have. And it's made freely available. It's completely online. So I encourage everyone yeah. to, to take a deep dive into you know, what could be a Pandora's box. Uh, as, as we go to find, um, to the final stretch and, and kind of wrap up. So you mentioned that, again, the exception is that if you're American, right, because of the way the U.S. code works, you're still exposed. So then that leads to the, the next question about expatriation or surrendering your green card. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's a super personal decision, right? There's, there's, there's yeah. a lot of stuff to consider. But generally speaking, I mean, seeing that you've gone through the process and no doubt you've advised many people on it, yep. high level, what does one consider in making such a yeah. life-changing decision? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people, you know, sometimes focus on on sort of the immediate things that impact them, right? Like, you know, not being able to get a bank account or not invest in certain things or, you know, something like that. But I think, you know, I think that where I think where you need to start is, you know, one, are you okay not having the right to reside in the US anymore? Or potentially even be able to visit the US anymore, right? Because you have no right to be able to enter the US anymore. So is that okay for you? Um, is your family okay with that, right? Um, if, if if they're gonna be expatriating too, or even if they're not expatriating, that you might not be able to go back to the US, right? Um, is your family okay living somewhere else? Um, is everybody going to expatriate, right? Or is it just going to be one person or select people? Um, you know, you need to think about things like, uh, are you going to be able to conduct your business from wherever you're going to be? How's that going to Im impact your, your business, right? If you have any professional licenses, is, is not being a U.S. citizen going to, you know, uh, influence that? Or if you have a business that's regulated does that require u.s citizenship um do you want the ability to pass on u.s citizenship to your kids for example um like you had mentioned earlier do you want to have the protection of the u.s right to be able to have access to to their embassies and so forth um and and, and i think one important question is have you ever lived outside the u.s before right i mean i, I had i had a, a an instance one time where you know a guy had never lived outside the united states but he was just you know opposed to politically what was going on in the U.S. And he was just hell bent on getting out and he got out and he regretted it. Right. And so mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that it's 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 really important to know what you're getting yourself into and that, that you can live with it. Right. And I think once you've sort of considered all of those things. And if it's still something that you want to do, then then, you know, you can can look at the process. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, the the issue of what's what citizenship do you then adopt because uh well when i look online obviously what's being promoted would be you know the faster options you know caribbean vanuatu whatever 
but those those come at a price. Most of my clients go for European passports, Singapore, Australia, like yeah. a tier, what we would describe as a tier one. But yeah. I've heard one of the most prominent influencers in this space, I mean, I won't call their name, but he was a US citizen. He obviously gave it up, but you know, he was describing he, he hosts this this huge conference and he switched it from one jurisdiction to another. And I was wondering as to why. And he he put out a video last couple of weeks. So we're recording this at the end of July. So it, it came out in July. And he's basically talking about over three years, three times he tried to enter Mexico on one of the, I, I assume what would be a lower tier passport. So a visa may or may not have been needed, et cetera. And he was detained first time for an hour, second time for two hours, and third time for three hours. So it's kind of like, wow. It's I mean, he didn't mention it, but I wonder in a situation like this, where suddenly you brought into this world where you have to navigate visa issues and they look at your passport with suspicion because it's not a top tier one, and you pull into back rooms and interrogate it. You know, does that lead to, to buyer's remorse? So do you have a position on that? Like what passport one should be looking at coming from a tier one jurisdiction like the US? I mean, look, I, I think it's a I think it's a I think if you if you give up a a, a a tier one passport like a US passport and then you're relying on on a lower tier passport, it's gonna be a huge adjustment, right? I mean, on a US passport, you pretty much hop on the plane, go wherever you want without a visa, it's no problem. But uh you know, I think a lot of people don't really consider how much work it is to deal with these visas and how difficult it is to get in some places, right? I mean, how long the visa process takes, even if you're able to get it. Um, yeah. And that can have a huge impact on, on you know, just your quality of life, if, if not your, your your business, right? So I think that if you're going for a, for a second passport, I mean, obviously, going for a tier one, a European passport, something like that is, is definitely the, the way to go. That's not always possible for everybody. Um, and, 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 you know, I'm not saying that it's, you shouldn't expatriate if all you have is a lower tier passport, but I think you need to give it some, some, some strong consideration about how that's going to impact your life. Absolutely. And in terms of expatriation, we've spoken about, about the qualitative factors deciding on uh, choice of jurisdiction, passports, et cetera. But what about the tax planning process? So yep. again, helicopter view, how would you recommend approaching tax planning, uh, pre-expatriation tax planning for U.S. exposed yep. persons? So, I mean, look, I, I think that, um, you know, as you, as you know, there's sort of two categories of, of expatriates, right? There's the non-covered expatriates, which mm -hmm. means that you can essentially expatriate with, with minimal tax consequences and there's sort of no negative tax implications that that trail you, right? I mean, you kind of mm -hmm. expatriate, you're more or less treated like any other foreigner would be. But um, if you're considered a covered expatriate, uh, then you have an exit tax. Uh, and then possibly more importantly, is in addition to the exit tax, any gifts or inheritances given to, to U.S. persons are going to be subject to gift or inheritance tax at the, the highest tax rate then in effect, right? So if you expatriate, you're a covered expatriate, let's say your kids are Americans, if you leave your inheritance to them, they're going to have a, a huge estate tax bill, right? So, uh, you know, you don't want to be an, a covered expatriate if, if, um, if you can avoid it. And then, you know, being a covered expatriate means, 
you know, you're not tax compliant for the last five years, you have a net worth of more than $2 million, or your average income tax liability for the last five years, I think it's almost $180,000 now. Correct. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I haven't seen a lot of cases where that average income tax has been an issue. It's usually mm -hmm. the, the net worth and the tax compliance, right? The tax compliance is usually fair, fixable fairly easily. Um, so to me, the pre-expatriation tax planning looks kind of like first, is there an, an exception to covered expatriate to qualify for, like the dual, uh, the born dual national exception, for example? Um, mm -hmm. Or is there a way that we can get your net worth under $2 million to get you, you know, recategorized from a covered expatriate to non-covered expatriate? So to mm -hmm. me, that's the way the the the, the pre-expatriation planning looks like. Okay, gotcha. Thanks a lot for that. So we, we touched on it earlier, but let's return for, you know, just a little deeper perspective on the role of online influencers. Obviously they play a role, but how important is their role? And I guess caution in all things is advisable. Yeah. So how cautious one should be as a, you know, as a customer, as a potential client in evaluating people who do things online like you and I do. Yeah. Um, look, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I think sort of as a blanket statement, obviously this doesn't apply to everybody, but I think, yeah. I think a lot of the most successful influencers are mm -hmm. successful marketers. Um, Absolutely. And, 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 mm -hmm. and, and they're out there usually, you know, they're good at marketing. They sort of latched on to selling passports, for example, and they don't mm -hmm. really know the the you know their goal is to sell passports, right? They don't mm -hmm. necessarily think about how that's going to impact their client's life, what the mm -hmm. tax consequences are going to be, whatever. They just want to sell passports, right? And they're only going to tell you what the advantages of that are and not the disadvantages, right? So mm -hmm. I think that unfortunately, a lot of the influencers are better marketers than anything that they're not really true advisors. They're, they're, they're salesmen trying to, to sell a product. That's mm -hmm. certainly not true of all of them, but that's mm -hmm. my impression of, of most of them. And I think that you have to be very aware of, of that, right? I think anytime you talk to somebody and all they're doing is telling you uh, the upsides of things without going into detail with you about the downsides, you're mm -hmm. probably talking to, to a salesman and you'd mm -hmm. be, probably be smart to avoid them. Right. And of course, the, the, the whole principle that one size fits all. I mean, obviously, sure. as as practitioners, we know that's not possible. But as a salesperson, you want to package a product that's 100%. easy to communicate and sell. So therefore, you, you know, you try to put everyone into this yeah. this one narrow category, which which is impossible. And then, of course, you mentioned earlier the importance of perhaps separating the the tax planning from the implementation of the structure 100%. just to make sure so okay yep. so I, I think that's it you know thank you very much okay. we appreciate your time over the past hour and a half if someone wants to find you what is the best way to get hold of jimmy and his team esquiregroup.com esquiregroup.com as simple as that easy as way. simple as that <laughs> jimmy thanks a lot appreciate it and we'll see my you pleasure next time. always a pleasure darren thank you bye-bye see you so if you're a six, seven, or eight-figure investor, entrepreneur, or business owner who needs a tailor-made solution from a qualified team of professionals, 
we can help you achieve the international lifestyle, the freedom, and even the tax savings you're looking for. Visit us at htj.tax and live that international life.